Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. We use a live conference call and give our experts only six minutes to present. This is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. I think you will find the discussion to be informative and entertaining. What Happens Next is designed to be politically neutral so listeners can draw their own conclusions. I end the program with a one-minute note of optimism from each speaker. This Sunday's program covers two topics, education and U.S.-Chinese relations. Our first speaker is Paul Peterson, who is a professor of government at Harvard, as well as the director of education policy and governance. Paul is the author of the book Saving Schools, From Horace Mann to Virtual Learning. Paul will discuss the short and long-term negative consequences for children who do not participate in in in-person schooling. Our second speaker is Aaron Tang, who is a professor of law at UC Davis. Aaron will tell us about the inherent conflict of interest that exists for teachers' unions between teacher employment security and maximizing student performance. Aaron will also give us an update on the consequences of the recent Janus Supreme Court case. Our third speaker is Steve Selenow, who is the president and CEO of the Arizona Community Foundation. Steve previously served as deputy superintendent of Maryland's Montgomery County Public Schools, as well as the interim superintendent of the District of Columbia Public Schools. Steve worked for nearly five years as the deputy director of the Gates Foundation's U.S. Program in Education, leading grant-making all over the country. Steve will discuss the importance of negotiating teacher firings as part of the collective bargaining process. Our final speaker in the education segment is Laura Duran, who is Chief Counsel and Associate Executive Director of the California Teachers Association. Laura will speak about the teacher union's role to improve worker conditions and to help raise taxes that will support schools. Laura will argue that the current focus on bad teacher firings is a distraction and unhelpful. What I hope to learn today is why has the U.S. decided to go with so little in-person learning as compared to other G7 countries, and is it due to the demands of the teacher union? I would also like to find out why it is so challenging to terminate a bad teacher, and how problematic is poor teacher quality, and is that concern overly exaggerated? Finally, our state and local budgets are in flux. We may not be able to afford the same government services that we once took for granted. How can we reduce the cost of education, and how can we increase teacher productivity? Our second segment today on what happens next relates to U.S.-China relations. A few weeks ago, we had a session on the end of the liberal international order, where the topic of the upcoming Cold War between the U.S. and China played a central role in the debate. You may recall that John Mearsheimer took the position that the U.S.-China dispute was inevitable and that we must do what we can to undermine Chinese economic growth and its military and political power. John Eikenberry took a different position, that China should be encouraged to join the liberal international order as a significant player. The hope was that the liberal international order would would be open to all countries, and that in the long run, this would foster economic growth, individual freedom, democracy, and avoid war. Today, we'll hear from three speakers who will expand the discussion on the U.S.-China rivalry and the risk of a military war between the two global superpowers. Our first speaker in this segment is Graham Allison, who is a professor of government at Harvard. He is the author of the recent book, Destined for War, Can America and China Escape the the Felicity's Trap? Graham will tell us about President Xi's objectives, 
whether U.S.-China relations will continue to worsen, and if the world's two, super, two great superpowers can successfully avoid the, the, the Thuicides trap. Our second speaker in this foreign policy segment is Robert Kaplan, who is the author of 19 books, including his recent The Return of Marco Polo's World. Twenty-five years ago, I read Robert's fascinating book, The Balkan Ghosts, which correctly warned of a future war in the Balkans. I've read a number of Robert's books, and what amazes me is the broadness of his global perspective when he writes about his travels in Eastern Europe, Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. Today, I've asked Robert to focus his comments on the future of U.S.-China relations and the importance of working with China's neighbors to contain Chinese growing military and economic power without becoming preoccupied with our ideological differences. Our final speaker for today's program is Daniel Jurgen, who is the vice chairman of IHS Market. You may recall that Daniel Jurgen spoke on what happens next a couple of months ago. Daniel recently released a book entitled The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. This book is a very broad history of the energy market that discusses the growing importance of fracking and renewables on the global supply of energy and the increasing use of electric vehicles that will reduce the long-term demand for oil. I asked Daniel to speak about the U.S.-Chinese competition in the world energy markets. This call is being recorded. If you have any questions, please feel free to email me during the program, and I'll try to work them in. Yom Kippur begins this evening, which is the Day of Atonement for the Jewish people. I wish those who participate an easy fast. Now let me turn it over to my co-host, Rick Banks, who has some opening remarks. Rick, please go ahead. Hi, everyone. I'll, I'll be brief. Let me just begin by saying, though, that that is a dazzling lineup. Uh, my response uh, to hear all these people uh, that we put together is simply, wow. Uh, these speakers today continue a practice of focusing on timely and important issues confronting American society. Uh, I have a particular interest in these topics, though, because education is especially important to me. Not only am I a professor at a big university, I also owe, as I suspect many of our listeners do, so many of the good things in life to my own educational experiences. My educational experiences as a child were in both public and private elementary schools. So I have a sense of uh, teachers in the public schools as well as extensive private school experience. I also come from a family uh, in which we had teachers. We are living through a period with respect to education that is special in a way that we often take for granted. Formal education is central to people's life prospects now, perhaps more than ever. It's difficult to think about the pursuit of the American dream without thinking about education. But it's also important to remind us to remind ourselves that this was not always the case. Prior to the 20th century, formal education was less widespread and arguably less relevant to one's life prospects. And as technology changes, it's not clear that formal education will remain forever uh, as important as it is right now. Right now, though, formal education is monumentally significant. And I'm thinking not only about the prospects of individuals, but also in terms of social phenomena, in particular social mobility and racial equity, which are essential to the health of our democratic project. While the China discussion will not focus on education explicitly, that issue also implicates education. For the most valuable capital in our nation, which enables us to compete with China and other nations, is its human capital. We fail to develop that capital at our peril. We decided to focus on teachers' unions in particular because uh, that's a topic that we need to understand better if we want to try to understand educational challenges that confront us. As with other topics, the only way we can gain genuine insight is to hear from experts. 
And in particular, we need to hear from experts who have different views who don't all agree. One of the premises of what happens next is that it's only through confronting the evidence and perspectives of people with whom you disagree that the truth can emerge. So looking with great anticipation for this conversation, uh, let's begin. Back to you, Larry. Okay, Rick, thank you. Again, our first speaker today is Paul Peterson. Um, he will be discussing uh, why we need in-person classrooms now. Paul, please go ahead. Uh, well, thank you, Larry, uh, for that kind introduction. Let me just say that there are so many reasons why children should be back in school that I, I can't cover them all. But the most important one is that students need to learn. They need to build their capital. It isn't done overnight. It's done slowly. It accumulates e each year. Studies have shown that every year of learning leads to about a 10% increase in the amount of earnings that you will have later in life. And it's not just money. That's just the easy quantitative indicator. It's also going to make you a better citizen. It's going to make you a better uh, uh, family member. It's going to lead you to have better relationships with other people in society. We know that education is of great benefit to people. We also know that if you miss a year of schooling, this has an adverse effect on you as a child and at your future as an adult. Uh, we know that from a variety of studies, uh, some students lost a year of learning in World War II, and scholars have looked at what happened to them several uh, decades later when they were adults, and they paid a price, and the price is about 10% for each year of learning that you lose. Uh, we also know that when teachers went on strike in Latin America for an extended period of time, that students lost later in life a significant share of income. Now, a couple of scholars have tracked this for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. They asked them, tell us what has been the price of closing the schools last spring. And they said, well, it's about 3%. So they made these same calculations that I'm doing right here, and they said it's about 3%. It was, it was about a third of a year. They were, they were cautious. Uh, so, the, uh, if we lose a whole year of schooling, uh, it's going to be 10%, and we're on the verge of losing a full year of schooling. Now, people say, well, kids can learn online. Well, some kids can learn online. It's not a total loss, but there are many children who learn a lot less online, especially in the context where we really don't have a sophisticated online uh, delivery system. It's possible that at some point in the future we will have very sophisticated techniques for engaging students online. I'm less convinced of that now than I used to be because I've seen in practice just how uh, important a, another person in the room is for an individual learning. I can see that in my own classrooms that I'm teaching online this year because Harvard University says you must teach online and it's, our students are paying a price for that. I don't think the price that Harvard students are paying is anywhere near the price that the average high school student is paying to say nothing of elementary school students. And of course there's a big difference among students. Some students learn readily and some students 
students learn only with difficulty. Some require a lot of personal assistance. I'm not talking simply about those who uh, are in need of special education, are disabled, although they are the prime example of that, but there are the students who do not have at home a supportive educational environment. And that supportive educational environment at home can do a lot to substitute for uh, the lack of instruction in the classroom. But if you don't have that, then the price that you pay is very large. We know that we have not closed the gaps between the high income and the low income students, the high socioeconomic class and the low socioeconomic class over the last 50 years. They're as wide today as they were 50 years ago. For all the money that we've spent trying to close it, nothing has happened. Now we're going to make it worse. It's almost inevitable that as we are sitting here now, the gaps in our society are increasing with every week that the schools don't go back into session. Now, we, I haven't even talked about the social and emotional well-being of children, and I see this in my own grandchildren. If they're not going to school, this is having an adverse effect on their relationships with others. They, they miss their friends. They miss that opportunity to socialize. The problems uh, of, of, with, with physical health are also present there. So there are so many reasons that schools need to be open. It's not just eye examinations and ear examinations and vaccinations and seeing the nurse when you're sick and, and the school being the first uh, line of defense against uh, uh, specific problems that may not be identified in the home. All of those things are big factors, but probably the most important thing is that students are not being given the opportunity to learn. Now, is the COVID so serious that we have to sacrifice that? I'm not a, a, an expert in that area, but the people who are experts in that area tell me that the children are the least likely to uh, uh, get the coronavirus um, uh, disease, and they are the uh, least likely to spread the disease. So the effects on children uh, are, are more or less comparable to the effects of influenza. That's what the best evidence now suggests. If we were to close the schools every time we have an influenza epidemic, which we do almost every year, the, the, it would become laughable what we would be doing to our young people. But that is exactly what we're doing at the present time. Thank you very much, Paul. Okay, plenty of questions for you in the question and answer period. Our next speaker is Aaron Tang. Aaron is a professor of law at the UC Davis School of Law. Uh, he will be discussing the conflicts between for teachers' unions between employment security and student education. Go ahead, Aaron. Thanks. <clears throat> so I want to make two points uh, in my time. The first is just to give a little bit of a postscript uh, on the state of public sector unionism, uh, teachers unions in particular, now that we're more than two years removed from the Supreme Court's decision in Janus versus uh, AFSCME Council 31, which is a ruling uh, that some in organized labor worried or described uh, as a potential death blow. Um, and the short explanation of Janus, the decision itself, uh, for listeners, is that it upended a uh, decades-old compromise in which public sector unions were required, compelled by state law, to fairly represent all of their workers, even uh, those workers who objected to the union. Uh, and so where those objecting workers were in turn uh, required to pay the union what's called a fair share fee to pay for their fair share of the union's bargaining costs that produce a wage premium for them to pay for their fair share of uh, representation against the employer and so forth. Uh, but in Janus, the Supreme Court struck down 
uh, those fees under the First Amendment. They gave objecting workers with, in essence, a constitutional right to free ride on the union. Um, they're still entitled, right, to the benefits of bargaining and union representation, but they uh, can no longer be forced to pay for it. Uh, and so many commentators predicted that this would lead to a death si- uh, spiral for public sector union membership as even, you know, supportive members recognize they can free ride and get the benefits without paying. Um, some unions asked me, for example, predicted itself losses in membership of uh, 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 as much as 15 percent, maybe even more. Um, but now that we're two years removed, uh, uh, the evidence so far is that this, this death spiral has not begun. Uh, in the two years since Janus, uh, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, public sector union membership rate has declined by less than 1% in the aggregate. Teach lose a tiny fraction of their membership. Um, and the reason why has, uh, has been pretty clear, the unions have worked very successfully to persuade workers um, about the, the value of voluntarily joining uh, and paying uh, dues to the union. So the second point is to ask a question, and that question is, is the resilience that teachers unions have shown in the face of Janus uh, a good thing for America? Uh, and here's the second point I want to make. Um, that's a hard question. It's much, much more complicated than many progressives or conservatives might like to think. Um, a, a lot of the arguments for why public sector unions are good might be familiar, and I think Laura uh, will, uh, will be much more effective in making those points in a moment, so I, I, I won't focus on them. But just to touch on some, right, they include the fact that unions produce a wage premium, significant premium for working class folks, uh, to the extent one has political progressive, uh, progressive political leanings like myself. Right, they're obviously an important factor in electoral politics. Right? And I want to emphasize that point just to be clear with readers and listeners so, so they can form their own judgments about any bias as they might worry that I have, right? I am politically progressive. I also am a former inner city uh, St. Louis middle school teacher. So a lot of what I'll talk about, about the conflict between teachers unions and what's best for poor kids and kids of color comes from personal experience, uh, uh, heavily informed by personal experience. And that's what I want to focus on, right? Is this complicated relationship between unions and this issue care deeply about, which is improving educational opportunity for our kids, particularly brown and black kids, uh, poor kids who face this pernicious gap in terms of school quality. And here's why I think that question is harder than many people recognize or or admit. Um, Sometimes what's best for teachers unions is not what's best for kids, in particular poor kids and kids of color. Now, to be clear, sometimes it is what's best. Unions have been on the front lines fighting for increased school spending, which obviously can be helpful to kids. Uh, Historically, unions have fought for critical protections, like ensuring that female teachers, for example, can't be discriminated against on the basis of pregnancy. It's a rule that obviously helps both teachers and their students. Um, So again, I'm not here to say that unions are bad. Um, I'm just trying to say that there are compelling arguments on both sides. Okay, so what are some of the arguments on the other side? Let me just give an example. Uh, This is the policy question Larry alluded to of what we ought to do as a policy matter about bad teachers, right? Listeners probably have firsthand experience with this, maybe heard stories. I'm talking about teachers who barely even try to teach, who fall asleep in class, they just show movies, worse, right? I worked with several of these teachers in inner city St. Louis public schools. Um, And there's just an overwhelming body of evidence that if we could just remove these teachers, maybe just the bottom 5% of teachers who year in, year out, they consistently fail to produce any learning from their students, right? If we could just replace them with average teachers, we'd have this huge benefit in terms of student achievement, reduce high school dropout rates, uh, uh, lifetime economic productivity. Um, and what is more, that, that benefit would be greatest in the schools that serve low-income kids, uh, uh, kids of color, who are, of course, disproportionately likely to be taught by our lowest uh, uh, performing teachers. 
Um, but the fact of the matter is we just don't do that, right? The statistics are kind of staggering in large districts like Chicago or Denver. The statistics are fewer than 0.01%. Uh, one of 10,000 or more tenured teachers are dismissed for poor performance in any given year. Right? And the reason why is pretty clear. Teachers unions are very good at protecting their members. Um, which is, of course, the whole point of the union, which is it's to protect its workers. In a lot of ways, uh, I'll, I'll concede that's great. But in others, it creates this conflict or this tension. Sometimes the interests of the union are going to run up against the interests of our children, including disadvantaged children. It's not just the question of leaving bad kids in the classroom where they inflict educational harm on kids. It's another policy debates too, right? When there is money to be spent, unions often champion a costly intervention of reducing class size, but the evidence is that's not a great use of money outside of kindergarten through third grade. So middle, high school class size reduction is very costly, but not very beneficial, uh, especially compared to other policy reforms like paying cash bonuses to teachers to encourage them to transfer to low-performing schools, uh, perhaps integrating schools by socioeconomic status. Um, I, I see my time is up, so I'm going to uh, pause right there. But I, I'm just trying to sell that this is a difficult policy question, much more difficult than either side of the political divide might like it to, think, like it to be. Okay, Aaron, thank you. Um, our next speaker is Steve Selznow. Steve um, is, formal, is currently the president and CEO of the Arizona Community Foundation uh, and has spent decades um, in public school education. Steve, go ahead. Uh, good, good afternoon, everyone. Let me pick up where, where Aaron left off. And let me start with a central premise that he raised that I'm sure many of you have heard and many of you may have even spoken yourselves. Bad teachers can't be fired because of the powerful unions who protect them. I'm going to argue today that that's an orthodoxy, an orthodoxy that we must challenge if we have any hope of reforming public education in America. So why focus on bad teachers? Bad teachers have a devastating and sustained negative impact on students and their achievement, and it's especially worse as Aaron mentioned, with students of color and children who come from low-income families. And what do we know about this? It takes up to three consecutive years of a good teacher to mitigate the damage of one year with a bad teacher. Let me repeat that. Up to three consecutive years of a good teacher to mitigate the damage of one year with a bad teacher. And this very problem undermines many of the interventions we've seen to reform schools. And Aaron mentioned class size, and I'm going to mention it too. So let's look at class size. It's a common intervention, and he was absolutely right about where class size makes the most difference. And everyone would agree just generally that small classes are better than large classes. But when you have bad teachers scattered across your schools, it really doesn't matter. Why? Because a bad teacher is just as bad with 15 students as they are with 30. And the intensity of that badness affects those 15 students maybe worse than the 30. And a good teacher with 30 is always better than a bad teacher with 15. So given these kind of basic elemental factors, you would think reform efforts would directly address this vast problem across schools in America. 
but they generally tend to address the edges of the problem, not what I'd argue are the two key inflection points, the collective bargaining agreement and the role good teachers can play in solving this problem. If the collective bargaining agreements and our orthodoxies about teacher professionalism don't change, I can tell you over years of investing in change in schools, very little else will change. So I'd ask you to accept five different assumptions to guide the change we need. Number one, teacher unions are not evil. Two, good teachers want to rid their schools of bad teachers as much as management. CBAs are not immutable. Two parties are equally responsible for the collective bargaining agreement, management and the union. And management rights and teacher professionalism have equal importance and value. Now here's a case to prove my point. A large district with 12,000 teachers and 200 schools was removing eight to 11 teachers per year for cause for decades. That's infinitesimal. That is far less even than the number that, that Aaron mentioned. And instead of removing those bad teachers, they were passed around the 200 schools every year wreaking havoc on students wherever they were assigned. Now there, there are aphorisms in the field for this practice and you'll hear it in every state in the union. The annual dance of the lemons or the annual passing of the trash. Management of the district in this case and leadership of the union decided they wanted to end this, manage, this madness and adopted the five principles I just shared. So what did they do? First, they committed to fundamentally rethink and rewrite the CBA. They flipped their orthodoxy on who could formally evaluate a teacher. And they gave through the CBA good teachers, best in class teachers, the formal authority to evaluate and make dismissal recommendations. After all, principals weren't doing the job. The union agreed not to arbitrate dismissal cases if teachers recommended dismissals. And the union and management together identified the teachers who would be doing those evaluations. Indeed, the union wouldn't arbitrate against their own dismissal recommendations. Teachers won the professional status they long sought through the formal authority to evaluate, to be a, a professional peer. The district reduced costly arbitrations, which they generally lost, and this ended the devastation of the dance of the lemons. What are the numbers? First year, from eight teachers dismissed for cause to 50. Second year, 50 to 125. Third year, 125 to 250. The fourth year, 250 to over 300. That's still 0.025% of the workforce. If you expect to reform education, I'd say do two things. Challenge your orthodoxies and assumptions about teachers and their unions and focus on the collective bargaining agreement.
Steve, thank you very much. I will get back to that in the Q&A. Um, our next speaker is Laura Duran. Uh, Laura is Chief Counsel and Associate Executive Director at the California Teachers Association. Uh, she will speak about how teachers' unions are advancing the public interest. Laura, go ahead. Thank you. We all care about living in safe, healthy communities where people have equal opportunities to attain their potential and share in economic prosperity. This is central to the American dream. I'm here to talk about how unions play a critical role in achieving the American dream and how teachers unions in particular are powerful advocates for the public interest. The passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg reminded us that she lived the American dream. And maybe some of you saw this last week, Chief Justice Roberts, John Roberts, gave a eulogy at her memorial. And he started by saying that Justice Ginsburg used to ask, what is the difference between a bookkeeper and a Supreme Court justice? The answer, one generation. I too was fortunate to experience the American dream in one generation. My parents were ethnic Germans who were displaced by the Second World War and came to the US as, as refugees with very little formal education and little more than the proverbial clothes on their back. Um, and my dad became a tool and dye worker in a factory, and he was able to provide a dignified working class life for our family because he had a reasonably well-paid unionized job. My dad's union job gave me the economic security to pursue my dreams. I ended up graduating from Stanford Law School, clerking for a federal judge, becoming a partner at a law firm, and now being a chief counsel for one of the largest labor organizations in California. And that is what unions actually do for many of us, so many of us. And they do it in different and important ways. Now, I'm going to briefly touch on how unions help families achieve the American dream. And then I'm going to highlight just a few quick examples of how teachers' unions promote great schools for all students and a more equitable and healthy society for all of us. So first, so how do unions counteract increasing economic inequality that threatens the American dream? Well, let's recall some facts. Shortly after American workers won the right to unionize, which incidentally was, was won via bloodshed and, and a, lot of, a lot of agitation, America experienced the greatest period of middle-class growth in its history, growth based on earnings, not on debt. Now, from the 1950s to the 1970s, unions like the one that represented my dad bargained for decent wages, sick leave, health care, secure retirement benefits. They gave workers a voice, dignity in the workplace. Those union jobs were the very backbone of the American dream. But the middle class has been losing ground since the 1980s. A rising in income inequality in America has correlated closely with declines in union density, particularly in the, private in the private sector, as many of you I'm sure know. Middle class incomes have declined steadily as union membership rates have declined. And income inequality is reaching the most extreme levels in over half a century, where by some calculations, 90% of us only have about 14% of the US wealth. Now, unions can help right the ship again. Workers covered by a union contract earn on average over 11% more in wages than non-unionized peers in the same industry and with similar education and experience, Aaron, Aaron references earlier. Black and Latinx workers get an even larger boost from unionization. Black workers represented by a union are paid almost 14% more than their non-unionized peers, and Latinx workers represented by unions are paid over 20% more than their non-unionized peers. We also know that workplace safety, paid sick leave, healthcare, these things are all critically important to a functioning advanced economy. And unions pushed for these systems and we're protecting them now during the COVID-19 pandemic when they're more important than ever. Now regaining a robust middle class would benefit all of us in many ways, including by creating a strong consumer base for business. Now we can all agree too that in addition to a strong consumer base, businesses need a well-educated workforce. 
and that means investing in schools and teachers. And no one pushes for those investments more than educators. Teachers' unions are fierce advocates for their students, their communities, and I would argue the American dream. Let me quickly just mention a few examples in my very short time. One, teachers' unions have worked hard to dismantle sexism, particularly in the workplace. Teachers' contracts have long provided equal pay for equal work. Two, uh, the California Teachers Association has a very long history of advocating for students from advocating for free public schools in the first place back in 1866, to sponsoring legislation to ensure free textbooks for kids in 1911, to securing bilingual education for English learners more recently. Further, teachers are also powerful advocates for small class sizes, as some of the other speakers have referenced. But the reality is those small class sizes are very helpful, and they're particularly helpful for students of color and low-income kids. And they're very popular with parents and educators, and they, and they uh, cre create positive learning conditions for kids and positive working conditions for teachers, because teachers' working conditions are students' learning conditions. Teachers' unions engage in what we call bargaining for the common good. For example, CTA chapters advocate for wraparound services for students and services for immigrant youth. Now, as a final and important example of what teachers' unions do for all of us in the public interest, um, they are strong advocates for adequate and equitable resources for schools. Now, in California, for example, unions have, uh, teachers' unions have helped reform the school funding system so that districts that serve the neediest kids, those are kids with, these are districts with relatively high percentages of foster youth, poor students, and English learners, those districts now get additional funding. And this reform made the funding system here more equitable because it does take greater resources to serve those student populations. But school funding must be adequate in addition to being equitable. And a real-time example right now of how teachers' unions push for adequate school funding and how, how we tackle systemic inequities is California Proposition 15, which is on the November ballot. Teachers' unions working in a coalition with other organizations are sponsoring this voter initiative and it would reform the state's lopsided tax structure by closing a loophole in our current property tax system in California, which allows many large commercial properties to avoid paying property taxes based on their fair market value. For over 40 years, that lopsided situation, that loophole, has starved California's K-12 schools and our community colleges for resources and has deprived the state and local communities of resources we need for other important public services like public health, um, which we all know in this time is, is a strapped system. Teachers' unions' advocacy on this issue reflects what we all know to be true, which is that when we invest in schools, we all win. And investing in schools goes hand in hand with investing in a very strong middle class. The American dream that benefited me, Justice Ginsburg, and countless others is out of reach for too many of us. And strong unions are a key institution that can correct our course and ensure our shared prosperity. Now, I, I, I'm going to be running out of time, so I'm not planning to address um, all the arguments around why I think focusing on firing the handful of ineffective teachers is a distraction. But I just do want to end by saying, and I hope that we have time in the Q&A to address that, but I do want to end by saying what our real problems are in, the, in terms of in-school factors are the fact that we have actually incredible teacher shortages, and we are having difficulty attracting and retaining teachers in the profession. That's a far larger problem than figuring out how to find different systems um, for you know, how you counsel out bad teachers or deal with ineffective teachers. We have serious teacher shortages, and we need to get serious about make, figuring out how to make teaching a more attractive profession. Um, and I'm happy to talk about it in the Q&A, because I think I'm probably out of time, Larry, right? Great, yeah. Thanks. Well, thank you.
Okay, now for something completely different. Um, we're now going to be discussing uh, the future of U.S.-China relations. As I mentioned in my introductory remarks, uh, we've discussed uh, liberal international order previously, uh, and now we're going to uh, delve in and go into more detail about uh, this, 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 this Thucydides trap we have with China. Tough word for me. Um, our first speaker is Graham Allison. He is the Douglas Dillon Professor of Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, Graham, please go ahead. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be part of this group, and I'm happy to be on a panel with two colleagues who I'm, whom I admire greatly, uh, Dan Jurgen and Bob Kaplan. Uh, let me just uh, say that if no other takeaways from the day, people can say they met a great thinker and they know how to pronounce his name, so I'm teasing you, Larry. His name is Thucydides. So say it out loud, one, two, three. Thucydides. Thucydides, <laughs> thank you. Thucydides. You can go uh, download for free his History of the Peloponnesian War. Absolutely spectacular read. If every other page doesn't knock your socks off, check your pulse. Okay, so six minutes uh, for four points. First, the question Larry put, what does China want? Uh, the second question is, uh, what the, as we watch the deterioration of U.S.-Chinese relations, what the hell is going on? Uh, the third is, uh, what happens next? How much worse could it get? And the fourth is, is war, real bloody war, inevitable? Well, let me start with four tweets, and then I'll say a word about each. Okay? First, uh, what does she, China want? Uh, in one line, to make China great again. Long before President Trump unfurled his banner, she, in 2012, had said, our goal is to, the great rejuvenation of the great Chinese people. So second question. Uh, what the hell is going on as we watch this deterioration of U.S.-Chinese relations? My old professor, Henry Kissinger, uh, and I did an hour-long Zoom on this Friday afternoon. Basically, as Henry has said, the best lens available for piercing through the noise and the news to the underlying dynamic is Thucydides and the concept of Thucydides' trap. Thucydides' trap is the dangerous dynamic that occurs when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power. Third, what happens next? As I wrote in my book that was, was published just as Trump took office, expect things to get worse before they get worse. So how much worse could they get? Answer, a lot. In the last 500 years, there have been 16 instances of a Thucydidean rivalry. Twelve of them ended in real, bloody, devastating war. Fourth and finally, is war inevitable? And the answer is no. So let me say it quickly. No, no, no. War is not inevitable. Four of the 16 cases did not end in war. And I think the search we should all be about is not hoping to wish away the Thucydidean rivalry, because that's inevitable, but it is not inevitable that an outcome is a real bloody war. A word about each. Okay, so first, what does Xi China want? No leader in the, in the world today has laid out his ambitions more clearly than Xi. He laid out a plan 
for China for between 2016 and 2049, when they'll celebrate the 100th anniversary of the forming of the People's Republic of China. So they want genuinely to be all that China can be. They want China to be great. In their cosmology and history, China was the center of the universe, the sun around which all other countries revolved for 4,000 years until Westerners with technology showed up to, to humiliate them and to imperialize them and to uh, coerce them. So he wants to make China great again. And how great? Well, why should he be happy for Chinese to be only to have only one quarter the per capita income of Americans, which are here today? Why not half? Why not three quarters? Why not the same? Well, there's four times as many Chinese as there are Americans. So today, when their one quarter is productive, their GDP is equal to ours. And uh, when they become half as productive, they'll be twice the GDP. That's the substructure of international power. Second question, so how to understand what's happening? A Thucydidean rivalry, a classic Thucydidean rivalry. China is a genuine rising power. The U.S. is a colossal ruling power. When a rising power threatens to, and China is threatening daily to displace the U.S. from positions and prerogatives that we've become accustomed to after 100 years of an American century. So what China wants is not to displace us. That's not its motivation. It just wants to be all that it can be. But it wants to express its values and advance its interest. And therefore, it wants to rule Hong Kong. It wants to rule Taiwan. It wants to be the dominant power in the South China Sea. So the impact of its becoming uh, a great China is impacting what Americans have taken to be their natural uh, order of things. And in particular, you mentioned uh, the American-led international order. Third question, uh, what happens next? Well, normally, uh, 12 and 16 cases, even though the parties don't war, don't want war, uh, some third party's action becomes a trigger that f forces a, a vicious cycle of reactions that drag the two to a war neither wanted. Think the assassination of an archduke in June 1914. It seemed incredible, seemed inconsequential, didn't even make the front pages in New York. Within five weeks, all of Europe was consumed by a war that was so devastating that historians had to invent a whole new category. That's why it's called World War One, World War. So if, uh, for example, events currently in Taiwan lead Taiwan to take a sharper move towards independence because it doesn't want to become Hong Kong, and if the U.S. were to uh, attempt to defend Taiwan, and if China were to attempt to forcefully reintegrate Taiwan, we would have a trigger to a war that would likely escalate to a real war that could escalate to a nuclear war. And if it escalated to a nuclear war, uh, none of us would be on this phone call uh, going forward. Every target in the U.S. could be destroyed. Finally, war inevitable? No, no, no. So in the Cold War, we faced a uh, inimical enemy. Uh, we invented a form of war, but without bombs and bullets, called Cold War. But in any case, it avoided a hot war, 
that could have escalated to a nuclear war that could have destroyed us all. So history offers lessons, that clues and suggestions. The one that I'm most attracted to, and I'll just stop here, is that I, I mean, this is George I've been on for the four years since I sent this book to the publisher. I found nine possible avenues of escape, but the one most attractive requires holding two contrary ideas in your head at the same time and still functioning. That's what Scott Fitzgerald called the definition of a first-class mind. So rivalry, on the one hand, and partnership on the other. There's going to be a fierce rivalry between the U.S. and China because it really is a rising power. We really are a losing, ruling power. We're each determined to be number one. On the other hand, we live in a small globe in which if there were a nuclear war, we're both destroyed. We have a biosphere in which either one of us can make it uninhabitable for the others. So we're going to have to find, find some way to be fierce rivals in some arenas and thick partners in others. In business, this is sometimes called co-opetition. I can say more about it, but I think I've taken my uh, six minutes. Thanks. Thanks. That's terrific. Okay, our next speaker is Robert Kaplan. Uh, Robert Kaplan is the author of The Turn of Marco Polo's World, War Strategy in America Just in the 21st Century. Um, he has a article in The Current Foreign Affairs, uh, and as well as in The Current National Interest. Um, Robert, go ahead. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here to discuss China with, um, with Graham Allison and Daniel Jurgen. I'll launch right into it. Um, the subject of the article in Foreign Affairs, which I co-authored with Elbridge Colby, who basically wrote the uh, 2018 National Defense Strategy for Jim Mattis when he was Secretary of Defense. Uh, the subject of our article is uh, ideology is not the root of the rivalry between the United States and China, and it would be very dangerous if we made our rivalry excessively, I emphasize the word excessively, ideological. Um, so what is really at the root of the rivalry? First of all, it's China's very scale, the size of its population, the size of its economy, the size and aggressive funding of its military, and its, or, and, and its geographical position in the temperate zone, much like the United States. Um, if China were a democracy, let me challenge you all. If China were a democracy, it might still be a rival of the United States. U.S.-German relations have not been great for a number of years, and Germany is a democracy with a population less than one-tenth that of China. So it's China's very scale that makes us take notice. What is China seeking? China is not seeking to take over the world, to get rid of all democracies in the world. It is seeking more or less a kind of tribute system, which it had from the mid-14th to the mid-18th century in Asia, where it would be the top dog in greater Asia in the Indo-Pacific, um, where e e the smaller powers would have rights and they would have benefits, but China would be the first among equals in the pecking order. China would seek in this arrangement a kind of Finlandization of East Asia and beyond. That is, that the, the foreign policies of countries from Japan to Australia would be circumscribed, ultimately, by what Beijing wants. Now, the U.S. can simply not let this happen 
because it would threaten to freeze the United States out of the most important geographic part of the world economy. That is Asia. That is East Asia, the Indo-Pacific, the first among equals in terms of the, of the emerging world economy. However, while the U.S. cannot let this happen because China's goals are not necessarily ideological, um, the U.S. should take a deep breath and, ma- and make sure it, doesn't, it does not turn the U.S.-China rivalry into what we call an existential cage match, where it would be a fight to the death over which side history was on, and in which case every country mattered. And that was the kind of um, reasoning that ultimately helped lead to Vietnam. Don't think there cannot be other Vietnams in our future if we insist on turning the rivalry with China into an ideological, into an excessively ideological one, as as some have some have said. The fact is, we can live with the Communist Party of China if it respects our interests. Keep in mind, Henry Kissinger went to negotiate in China in the summer of 1971, before the Cultural Revolution was even over when China was still in the process of essentially indirectly killing millions of people, and only a few years after the end of the Great Leap Forward when 20 million people were killed. Brent Scowcroft, as as the elder Bush's national security advisor, went to negotiate with Beijing only a month after the Tiananmen Square massacre. And those were both the right things to do. Therefore, we should try to recover, in a spiritual sense, the example of the Nixon administration, the elder Bush administration, in the way that they dealt with China. Excessive, putting an excessive emphasis on ideology would put every country in the world into play. Now, if we were to excessively focus our, our, our rivalry with China on ideology, well then, um, uh, that would present a problem for all our Southeast Asian allies, because none of them, with the exception of Australia, are model democracies. Some are outright dictators like Vietnam. Others are very illiberal, problematic democracies like the Philippines. So ideology can get us into trouble. Um, Remember, we wanted an end to communism in the USSR, uh, and we got it. And we got a regime right now, Vladimir Putin's, which is more challenging to deal with than than late communism under Gorbachev after detente, after the Helsinki Accords. So we don't want a kind of twilight struggle with China. We want to keep ideology out of it. And to close, I'll say, what we should seek is Eisenhower's middle way. Uh, um, Eisenhower avoided military conflict with China in Kimoy and Matsu um, off the coast of Taiwan um, because he, he, he said no to the extremists who were willing to challenge China militarily on everything. We're, you know, we believe in human rights. We believe we have serious differences with the People's Republic of China. But we should try, is, is practically possible, to tone down the ideological rhetoric. Thank you. 
Super. All right, we'll come back to you in a minute after Dan speaks. Uh, Daniel Jorgen is our next speaker. Uh, Daniel is the vice chairman of IHS Market. He will be speaking about the U.S.-Chinese competition, specifically with the world energy markets. Daniel, go ahead. Uh, thank you, Larry. Uh, Graham and Robert uh, have wisely laid out the big issues in U.S.-Chinese relations, geopolitics, and ideology. I will build on that and add in energy. Uh, Graham wisely came up with the term Thucydides trap. My formulation is not as elegant. I call it the WTO consensus, the World Trade Organization consensus. It referred to the integration of China into a rules-based international order. Uh, and the WTO consensus, you heard it when previous U.S. presidents spoke about broader engagement and a constructive relationship with a changing China. You sure don't hear that anymore. The language is now of strategic rivals and great power competition. In Washington, Democrats and Republicans agree on very few things. On one thing they do agree, that China is a strategic rival, and that same language is to be found in Chinese strategic documents. The language has dangerous echoes, as Graham's Thucydides trap tells us. But the picture in my book of President Xi Jinping leading the Politburo when he became party secretary to the museum ex uh, exhibit across the street on the century of humiliation speaks volumes to tell you where he's coming from, reassertion of Chinese nationalism. So how does energy fit in? Simply, energy is critical to China's economic growth and its position. China is still largely a coal-fired economy, about 60% of its total energy. Xi at the, last, uh, at the UN last week, playing a point-counterpoint to Trump, uh, announced uh, that China would be net zero carbon by 2060. 2060. Note, that's pretty far away, and I would say it's unlikely that it will still be president for life at that point. Also to note, for China, unlike the United States, Climate is also about urban pollution, which is a very big issue for the government in Beijing. But oil looms larger and larger for China. Chinese oil demand has tripled since 2001 when it entered the WTO. And ever since the Korean War, China has regarded dependence on foreign oil as a major strategic risk for the mobility of its military and now for the mobility of the economy. Remember, and this may surprise people, the new car market in China is about 50% larger than it is in the United States. China has a pretty capable, a very capable oil industry. I know it pretty well. And it's, in fact, the fifth largest oil producer in the world. But it's not enough. China imports 75% of its oil compared to about 5% for the United States since the extraordinary shale revolution. And China is by far the largest importer of oil in the world. This growing demand for oil is one of the big reasons that China is pushing for electric cars. We've already heard the word South China Sea, the most important waterway in the world for global trade. The contention over goes back to the 1930s and a geographer named Bei Meishu, who drew what has now become the famous Nine Dash Line that asserts that China owns most of the South China Sea, hardly disputed by other countries and something that both Graham and uh, Robert have warned about. People say that, it, that this dispute is about oil, but I can tell you that our geologists and the international companies that I know think its prospects are, not, are significant for individual companies, but would not move the global needle. What really matters to China is the transit of, of oil over the South China Sea, 
and what the U.S. might do in general to disrupt the flow of oil in the event of a confrontation over Taiwan. There are other reasons for China to drive to assert its control over the South China Sea, including in general to limit the U.S. Navy, but energy flows are an important part of it. Then there is a $1.4 trillion Belt and Road Initiative to create connectivity with China throughout Southeast Asia and Central Asia into Europe and Africa, referring before, uh, as they pointed out, to the Middle Kingdom, making China again the economic Middle Kingdom of the world. It is both an economic and a geopolitical endeavor. doesn't have much ideology, as has been pointed out. Energy is one of the major drivers for it. It has become, however, somewhat complicated because of COVID-19 and levels of debt. Larry mentioned competition of the U.S. and China for energy. It may surprise, that's a, a thing kind of right now of the past, because it may surprise many of you to know that China is currently a major market for U.S. oil and gas uh, imports, part of the trade deal between uh, Trump and, uh, and Xi, but actually ex- extending beyond that. What's really striking in energy and geopolitical terms is a growing strategic relationship between Russia and China. Last year, I observed uh, uh, Putin and Xi talking about uh, saying that they never have enough time to talk. And one of the things they talk about uh, for sure is their ever deeper opposition to the United States. But energy is a very important part of that expanding relationship. Uh, Last uh, December, the two leaders had an elaborate ceremony to start the flow of uh, gas into the the power of Siberia pipeline, huge pipeline to China. So you can say that a relationship that was once based upon Marx and Lenin is today significantly grounded in oil and gas. And I would say in conclusion that the significance of this Beijing-Moscow nexus is of great geopolitical significance, and as relations with China and Russia become more tense, it will only strengthen. But a final point, and I think this is inherent in what both Graham and uh, Robert say, is that neither the United States nor China is going away. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Okay, that ends our formal presentations, and now it's time for question and answers, and I encourage all the other speakers to join in whenever they want, if they've got something to add. Uh, Daniel, why don't I start with you? Uh, you ended your discussion with the, um, the relationship between Russia and China, and going back to the role that Henry Kissinger played in both Robert's and Graham's discussion, uh, what Kissinger was trying to accomplish was to split China and Russia in his initial overtures to China. Um, John Mearsheimer, in his discussions with us previously, highlighted um, uh, it, it made it sense for American containment of Chinese power to ally itself with Russia, even if it meant undermining ties with Europe. Um, can you comment a little bit more about um, how we could split China and Russia and how energy plays a role, or is energy going to be the way that China and Russia actually become, come together even more closely? I would say fat chance. I mean, I hear that in Washington, people saying, how can we get Russia? We can't. We're just putting more sanctions on Russia. There are reasons for it. Uh, But there's no reason. I mean, Putin, if Biden becomes president, what will that mean that he's seen five American presidents come and go? He sees his future in the East. And uh, the policies that we're pursuing uh, with both China and Russia uh, will only drive them together. And they would not, you know, that... uh, you know, we put sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. 
$11 billion pipeline three weeks before completion, uh, that's not going to pry them apart. So I think I hear that, and I think that's being asked in, in circles, Democratic circles today. I'd say it's a fantasy. I agree 100%. Um, can I jump in here? It's, it's Robert. Yeah, I would just say, remember, when we split, when Henry Kissinger and Nixon split China and Russia, it, that was the early, that was 1971, and the Russians and Chinese had literally over a million troops on their border. They were on the verge of war. They, ha they had actual battles. So that time, you know, that was a time that's incomparable to today. Um, you know, splitting China from Russia then was eminently doable. It was just the tactics that the Nixon administration exercised so brilliantly. Now it's completely different. It's not eminently doable. Let me, you know, if I just offer one line on this, I agree with both of them strongly. Uh, Speak Brzezinski had a nice uh, uh, thought, which I wrote an article about last year. You can look it up on the, the U.S., or sorry, on the China Russia Entente, they called it the alliance of the aggrieved. So American policy has actually played a significant role in the development of the relationship between Xi and Putin. They're best buddies, and when they get together, the first thing on the agenda is the Americans who are trying to undermine our solid autocratic regimes. So there's your answer, Larry. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, <laughs> Graham, just to kind of follow that up, um, it seems that the tools that the United States is going to bring to bear to contain um, Chinese military and political power, they'll, they'll take a page from George Kennan's work and from their experience with the Soviet Union. Um, and they're going to try, and I think that's going to be a mutual feelings uh, between Chinese neighbors um, with, in working together with the United States. I'm thinking particularly India, um, Australia, and Japan, maybe South Korea, in that foursome um, to contain Chinese power. Um, how do you think about that melding of interests, um, and will that be successful, or, as you mentioned, will it cause a potential for war? as one of those four partners may get into um, some sort of a disagreement with China, and that could escalate into a, into a world war? A great question. So I think the place to start briefly is with the so-called balance of power, or what I would describe it as a seesaw of power. So what's happened in terms of economic power? China has gone from about uh, 10 or 20% of, of, of U.S. Uh, a GDP in 1990 to 100% in 2014 to 120% today on the way to 150%. That's measured by purchasing power parity, which is the yardstick that the CIA uses. So secondly, China has become the largest trading partner of everybody. So at the beginning of the 20th, 21st century, we were of all of Asia. Today, if you look at it, China is overwhelmingly. So attempting to organize a new Cold War in which people choose unambiguously between China and the U.S. is not going to align many people on our side. As our friends out there say repeatedly, don't try to make us choose between our economic relationship with China, which is essential for our prosperity, 
and our security relationship with you, which is essential for our safety. So this is a much different version of an effort to try to get on our side of the seesaw, because we certainly need some more heft people uh, to, uh, uh, the allied and the aligned, but each of them, as you say, will come with its own interests. And one of the difficulties, strings of alliance and alignment run both ways. So at the same time that we need their weight on our side of the seesaw, we need to be very cautious of the ways in which their interests are not our interest in every instance, and their interests could drag us into something that we're not seriously interested in, like a war with China. Let me give you an example of how I, um, I totally appreciate the economic angle. But sometimes I think the Chinese military acts in ways that is inconsistent with maybe uh, the, I'll call it the Chinese overall interests. So, for example, there was some fighting going on between India and China in the last uh, few months uh, over a, some sort of a border dispute. And for the first time in a generation, people were killed. Um, I got to imagine that that those actions will end up pushing India closer in its relationship with the United States. Who else will help defend India against uh, this great superpower? And I wonder in the same way with the Japanese, if, if, if they are firing on a Japanese ship in the South China Sea, who is Japan going to turn to other than us? So I don't think of it as uh, a seesaw necessarily. I think of it as what other options do they have and how will they think about this? In similar ways that France thought about having great trade relationships with Germany in 1914, um, but then you know, becoming militarily differently as it thought about its security interests. Well, Larry, you already see uh, the Indo-Pacific, I guess, it, you know, of uh, Japan and India and the U.S. kind of moving into an alignment. And also, by the way, uh, I mean, India has certainly gotten closer to us. And I've seen up close that the energy relationship with India, we're exporting oil and gas to them, has become a very important dimension of that new relationship. And the other important dimension is uh, their, their concern about China, as you point to it. Um, I'd say I'm, yes, the, the inevitable consequence of, the, of, the, of this will be pushes in one direction and pushes in the other direction. But I think the Chinese bet is that their, the, the forces of economic gravity will allow them to push further their interests, for example, in their dispute with the Indian border or in their dispute with Hong Kong or in their dispute, indeed, in building militarizing islands in the South China Sea. And that if you try to see who's on board for a war with China over Taiwan, pretty soon you'll find nobody that's there with you, not India. In fact, as Bob Blackwell, my colleague, likes to say, if you want to clear a room of Indian strategists in a, you know, in a, in a, in a stampede, say alliance with the U.S., and they run. Yeah, I think oh, it's... Well, also, if I can mention one other thing, for Japan, it exports as much to China as it does to the United States. So they, you know, they have to balance their economic and their strategic interests. However, they don't like the idea of China owning the South China Sea. Robert Kaplan, um, there is a view among some political scientists that two ways to avoid war uh, are, are for both parties to become a democracy. 
uh, democracies don't go to war with other democracies. That's one idea. And the second idea that's just been touched on is that if you have very strong economic and trade ties, it's unlikely you want to go to war against each other as well. Now, you spoke in your talk about um, why we shouldn't encourage democratic um, actions in this area, and we should feel stay away from ideological delusions. Um, is that in opposition to the democracies that fight other democracies, or is that just a recognition of on the ground we just you know we got to fight our battles accordingly to our international interests? Yeah, we can easily find a space where we support human rights, support democracy, while not raising the ideological temp, while not hitting China over the head with it every day and turning our rivalry with China, which has so many different aspects to it, uh, cyber, military, trade, into in, into a, into a kind of uh, you know heavy-handed debate on democracy. I spent uh, decades as a foreign correspondent around the world, and I. I did not see the world divided between democracy and authoritarianism. I saw, you know, um, you know, very successful democracies and hard totalitarianisms in very few countries. Much of the world is in gray shades, where you have enlightened authoritarian rulers like Jordan, like Oman, like Morocco, and then you have illiberal democracies where minor, where dictatorship of the ethnic majority over an aggrieved ethnic minority. So um, we should not try to turn this into a kind of which side is history is on, democracy or, or authoritarianism. That overly simplifies the fe- what's happening on the ground around the world. Can I uh, agree, agree completely with this? I think the nuance that Robert is suggesting is essential. But it's also the case, again, to go back to the Thucydidean dynamic, uh, the chapter in my book that Americans don't like the most is called, What If She's China Were Just Like Us? And I imagine it just like us, as we preached to them, when Teddy Roosevelt was leading us into what he confidently believed would be an American century. And you watch his behavior in the first 15 years after he arrives in Washington. And I think if he were commenting on Xi's China, he would say, my goodness, is he mild? You ain't seen nothing yet. And the first he arrived in, in Washington, uh, there was a ex- mysterious explosion on the main in Cuba. We declared war on Spain, liberated Cuba, uh, defeated, uh, kicked Spain out of the hemisphere, picked up the Philippines. We sponsored and supported a coup in Panama, in Colombia, created a whole new country called Panama. Uh, We announced the the Roosevelt Corollary, the Monroe Doctrine, which said if nations in our hemisphere, reclaiming the whole hemisphere, misbehave, we'll send the Marines to change their government. And we sent the Marines to some government every year the next 15 years. And we actually stole a big piece of the fat tail of Alaska. So I... I do, I do, the chapter there is delicious for those of you who are readers, and that's a democratic America. So I think it was democracy. If China were just like us when we were at that stage in their development, uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Graham, just to follow up on that, um, what Robert Cabot mentioned in his talk was a solution that maybe we choose Eisenhower's middle way. 
And um, in John Lewis Gaddis's book on strategies of containment, it goes into great detail about Eisenhower's strategy. And at that time, over those island disputes in the 1950s with China, um, China at that point did not have nuclear weapons, and Eisenhower threatened uh, potentially to use nuclear weapons over this island dispute. And he made that little unclear about how he would respond, but left the nuclear option on the table. Um, in your book, Graham, you talk about risks of how things can get quickly out of control. Um, you know, when you, you, when you play with the nuclear option and when you play with asymmetric responses, uh, you keep other countries on their toes. But, you know, you may have to, you know, do something sooner or later. Uh, Gaddis thought that the symmetrical response was worse when you actually made it aware of, like, what you would do. How do you think about Eisenhower's um, tactics um, and his middle way as a solution and methods to contain Chinese power? I, I again, agree with Robert that this is a wise course. Uh, the French made a maximum effort to try to get Eisenhower to come um, and the Americans to come bail him out in Indochina. He said no uh, and resisted. Uh, it was the Democrats, Kennedy and Johnson, that Americanized a war in Vietnam. That was our biggest policy mistake you know, of, the, of the period, maybe even bigger than the war with Iraq. So he had a very good sense that military power was crucial, but that it needed to be very cautiously exercised. The second thing is, he understood he didn't want a war with China. He had resisted war with China when the, when the, when the Civil War was going on. There was an axiom that he believed, Americans cannot fight on the Asian mainland. They have too many people. It's too complicated. And, most importantly, our vital interests do not require it. So, I think that's been a consistent proposition for uh, people that were clear-headed, and I think when we've departed from that, we made a big mistake. Larry, this is Dan. One other thing to add to that, you know, during the Cold War, as Graham knows and Robert, we had mutually assured destruction. Perhaps what we need with China is mutually assured ambiguity to kind of encompass the kind of issues that we're talking about and living with ambiguity. Daniel, in your new book, um, you talk about um, the important role of fracking and how it's completely upended the previous energy world that we lived in. Um, and you also mentioned uh, how electric vehicles have substantially reduced the demand for oil, uh, making it less of an important not, not, not international yet, issue. Yet. Their electric vehicles are a very, very small part of the, uh, of the mix. So when you hear she say we're going to be all electric vehicles in a few years, do you just view that as nonsense? No, I, I, yeah, the average car in America stays on the road for 12 years. I think electric cars are going to grow. I think if, if Biden's president will see more, you know, you get, you'll get more incentives to push it, more subsidies, whatever you want to call it. And I think the automakers are moving, and we hear California saying no gasoline cars after 2035, but there are 280 million cars. I, it's not clear what the receptivity is. And to say we're going to have electric cars in California when the power goes out with rolling blackouts raises a further question. So electric cars are coming. Automakers are committed to it. But I just I don't think it comes as, anywhere near as fast. And cars, by the way, are only about 20 percent of world oil demand, which is people think cars are all of oil demand, but they're about 20 percent. And this audience obviously focuses greatly on U.S. energy needs. But as, as you mentioned, China is probably going to be our biggest user of energy in the world. And their menu of what they use is different than ours. 
you mentioned the, the importance of coal currently um, and, and the fact it's so dirty. Um, in that, you know, uh, Al Gore movie, he would when he was flying over that plane, you know, over and he saw those coal plants spewing out um, pollution. You know, he, he was very upset. Um, how should we think about Chinese energy use, and as, as a uh, climate issue, um, as a economic issue, and then whether or not we can use that as a, a an ability to control uh, Chinese power? If China is dependent upon these sea lanes, uh, it may be less frisky in its military objectives. Well, or I think it raises the uh, likelihood of. Uh of, of conflict over the sea lanes. There have already been several near collisions of U.S. and Chinese ships uh, in the South China Sea, and that's the kind of spark that uh, Graham expressed uh, concern about. China, uh, is it's interesting, they have half the world's solar, they have half the world's wind, they have half the world's electric cars, but they're still building three new coal-fired plants a month. So it's sort of they're doing everything. They're cleaner than their old coal-fired plants, but, you know, energy for China is, is fundamental to their vision of economic growth and, as what Graham's saying, making China great again. So uh, it's, a, it's, it's a mixed picture. But I think they, the social contract, such as it exists between the party, the government, and the people, means you've got to bring down pollution. Middle class is demanding it. And so they will put uh, greater emphasis. That's why they're importing liquefied natural gas uh, from the United States to use gas instead of to kind of continue to push down the coal consumption. All right, I want to wrap up um, the discussion of China so I can go back to education. Um, but maybe I and I'll just um, ask Graham, Robert, and Daniel to give me um, their notes of optimism, and then I, I can have them drop off the call. Um, what do you guys? Uh, what are you optimistic about in the U.S.-Chinese relations, particularly on how we can avoid um, a hot war with China? Graham, why don't you start with that? Well, I think the inescapable reality is that, uh, and it's slightly grotesque, but that we in China are, in effect, uh, inseparable, conjoined, or Siamese twins. That is, if we have a nuclear war with China, we destroy ourselves. That's what in the Cold War with the Soviet Union, and I'm an old Cold War here, we call mutual assured destruction. And as Ronald Reagan uh, reminded us over and over, a nuclear war cannot be won and must therefore never be fought. So that produced a huge level of constraint in the competition, evil, even with the evil empire. We secondly have the climate impact of a China which will be, which is the world's largest energy consumer and the largest greenhouse gas emitter. And if China, China can emit on its own route enough greenhouse gases to make the biosphere uninhabitable for us, and we can do the same for them. So we share some vital interest. Whether countries can be wise enough to be partners where they have to be partners for their survival, while at the same time, their fierce rivals in terms of their interests and values. You know, that's a challenge, but I believe it's a challenge we're up for. And ultimately, the test for both societies is what they can do inside their own border. So actually, if we just end on a positive note, I would say that if we as America can renew America to show that we can make America democracy work 
American economy work, we have a great future. If we can't, the rest is not going to be very interesting. And ditto, if China can make their uh, party-led autocracy work successfully, I don't believe they can over a long run. But if they can, they're going to have a great future. But it's the, 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 the first and foremost battlefield is at home, and that includes things like education. So I like the link up between the, between the two topics that you're doing today. But when you look at the test scores, international test scores of junior high school students, high school students, university students, STEM and uh, STEM degree students in uh, colleges and universities, uh, that's not a race we're, we're, we're winning today. Thank you, Graham. Robert, what would, would you have as your concluding remarks and notes of optimism on the U.S.-Chinese relationship? Uh, I think the notes of optimism is the U.S. and the Soviet Union had almost no trade with each other. It was a purely one-dimensional military, ideological, geographical conflict. China and the United States do so much trade with each other. There is so much conjoining economically, fiscally, that it acts as a constraint on initiating a conflict. Just one thing, a short, sharp war in the South or East China Sea lasting just a few days could tank, could tumble financial markets around the world because the, the world's number one and number two economies would be in military conflict. That's something neither side wants. They're well aware that the stakes, the economic stakes for outright warfare in, the East, in, East, in East Asia's adjacent seas are profound, much more profound than any conflict that we've seen since 2003 in the Middle East. So I think those will act as serious breaks on the U.S.-China conflict. Thank you. Daniel? First, I think it's, uh, to go back to the climate, just to know China produces about twice as much CO2 every year as the United States. I think a turning point in the whole relationship between the U.S. and China, when you look back on it now, as I did in my book, is a 2008-2009 financial crisis where we lost, uh, we ceased being the model for how you run a global economy. I think positive things, I think Robert has pointed to one, which is not let this become an ideological uh, conflict, as I think you hear some of the rhetoric today. And the other is around the interdependence. GM sells more cars in China than it does in the United States. China holds up to one and a half trillion dollars of U.S. government debt. I used to think that it was a great sign for the future that there were 362,000 Chinese students uh, studying in the United States because of what that did for bonds. Uh, and, but, of course, that has become controversial now. But I think the note of optimism would be that interdependence will uh, win out in given the degree of engagement between these two economies uh, when those, even as those other risks are there. So uh, my optimism is around interdependence. Great. Okay. Thank you for those speakers. And now um, we're going to head back and finish up with our uh, discussion about education. Um, I know that my co-host, Rick Banks, is champing at the bit. Rick, why don't you take it away? Thank, thank you, Larry. Uh, this is all fascinating. Let me go back to Paul Peterson to, to start, since you were the first speaker. Paul, you compared uh, closing schools in the case of COVID to closing schools in the case of a flu epidemic. Uh, and you rightly observed that we would never close schools because of the flu, uh, but we are because of COVID. So uh, in your view, 
how do you explain what you see as an overreaction in the in the case of COVID? What are the key factors that have led us to do be so much have, have a so much more extreme reaction than we should have? And then the second part is how do you compare our reaction to the reaction in other countries, uh, Canada, Mexico, our European neighbors? Well, you know, the first um, encounter we had with something like COVID in the uh, modern era. It was uh, the Asian flu, uh, it was the name given it, uh, back in 1958 when I was in high school. And 200,000 people are estimated to have uh, died in the United States, uh, assuming a population the size that we have today, which is twice what we had back then. It was 100,000 then, equivalent to 200,000 today. we had par- my senior class all had our parties, our prom, our graduation exercises, our summertime festivals. Uh, there was a jamboree of all the Boy Scouts in America in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania that summer in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, nobody paid it any attention. People just sort of said, you know, that's the way life is. There's always a risk. So I think what we've ha- what's happened is be- people have become increasingly um, uh, inclined to think that they can live a re- risk-free life, and people become excessively concerned about safety over time. It's almost as if since we don't believe in eternal life anymore, we have to believe in eternal life on this earth. And so there's a, a huge uh, concern mm-hmm. among uh, ordinary people about this. now. I think it's been fed by a, a, a media frenzy on this topic. So it's it's not like, you know, ordinary people haven't been sort of uh, given nudges, a lot of nudges out there by the by the media. So I think that's that's uh, definitely aggravated it. And then there's self-interest out there. There's a, a just an enormous number of, of people out there who say, you know what, it's it's not so bad. Uh, if I don't go to work, I can work at home and I can get paid. And and with our public sector, uh, we're paying everybody whether they're working or not. And so the teacher unions are, have become a very serious problem uh, in the sense that they uh, th- th- their members are getting paid whether they work or not. It's more fun to work at home than to have to go into the classroom and, and the commutes can be long. Uh, and, and so the power of, of unions, you know, the, the teachers' unions has a political power that no other union has because they're on both sides of the negotiating table. They play a major role in the election of school board members across the country, or they play a major role in the election of mayors across the country. For a mayor to take on a union, especially the teachers' union, it's exceedingly difficult. And you're seeing this in places around the country where uh, mayors are trying to open the schools and they're being frustrated because they, the teachers' union is finding endless reasons not to do so. The air conditioning doesn't work. There's not enough ventilation. Uh, we don't know how to handle masks. We, they, we aren't prepared. How can they not be prepared? Why weren't people getting prepared last spring when the shutdown occurred and, and spent their whole summer getting prepared? So there's endless uh, uh, problems that the educational system now faces uh, because of uh, the genuine fear is out there. There's no doubt about that. There's a lot of people 
who are genuinely fearful. Now, if I want to end on an op- uh, optimistic note, and I, I no, we're not, we're not, we're gonna, we're gonna have optimism come later. You don't need to get optimistic oh, yet. Uh, I'm gonna have to <laughs> get off at this point, so I'm gonna give you my optimistic note. I think okay. in the end, people are going to say enough is enough. I don't think the COVID's going to go away before people say enough is enough. So I think maybe uh, my guess is shortly after the holidays, we're going to see a feeling in the country that we have to get back to normal. So thank you very much for inviting me yeah. on. I'm sorry I have to drop off at this point. Go ahead, go ahead Paul. Thank you. Well, let me, um, let me, I, know, I know Steve Stelzner also has to drop off soon. Steve, you heard some of the comments uh, that Laura mentioned about uh, the role for unions. Do you want to comment a little bit about that? Steve, you're on mute. Thank you. Um, I think, um, you know, the way we talk about unions today suggests that there are conflicting interests all the time in the nature of the relationship between school districts and the unions that represent their teachers and their bus drivers and their cafeteria workers and all the range of people that run schools. Um, is some uh, based in conflict. And, and I would argue that there are more common interests than conflict. E- even with what we were just talking about, returning to schools, teachers have legitimate interests about how to return. And so I think if we begin thinking about our unions, our teacher unions as assets, and, and instead of warring partners, we could solve a lot of these problems more creatively and much faster. And what you know, you highlighted the point of, of the collective bargaining um, process as in bringing teachers in to make the decisions. Um, why hasn't that gone national in scope? Um, and what's the tension for um, that becoming the, 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 the best practices? Well, it, it, it really requires you to let go of things that have been ingrained in you, that if you were to allow teachers and believe that teachers um, uh, have one role and management has another, instead of saying, you know, I know from my good teachers, they don't want bad teachers any more than I do, and accept that I'm not giving up power, I'm not ceding authority, I'm actually sharing it, and I'm taking advantage of what my teachers bring to the table on this specific issue. And, but most of the times they're characterized by years and years and legacy of conflict as opposed to switching the way both management and unions think about each other and getting past historical conflicts they may have had to a new way of thinking about solving problems and really exploiting the assets that are right there in schoolhouses every day. Um, Laura, Laura, what do you think about uh, Steve's proposal? Is, is, that a, uh, uh, is that a viable means to uh, address the issue of teacher retention or, or, yeah, or thanks, rather thanks. Teacher, teacher, teacher firing? 
Uh, yeah, this, this is Laura. Thanks. Um, I, I agree with Steve um, about teachers unions being assets and good partners. And in fact, that's how teachers unions, at least here in California, which of course I can speak to directly, um, try and approach things. Um, and, and, and I should say there's a huge variety acro uh, across the country um, around how um, teacher, how much due process educators get once they've earned uh, what's often, often referred to as tenure. It's not called that here in California, but um, and the process is a lot of variation. So actually here in California, for example, we do have a process where teachers are involved. Actually, in the, uh, peers are involved in a couple different ways. We have a peer assistance and review program where struggling teachers can get help from peers um, and professional development and like. But um, if there is a dismissal, a formal dismissal of a tenured teacher here in California, and that teacher actually um, elects to go to a hearing to challenge it, that hearing occurs between a three-person panel uh, that consists of a neutral administrative law judge and two teachers. So we do have two teachers and, and a neutral who then decides whether there's cause to dismiss. Um, and that's all governed by statute here in California. We don't bargain that. So none of that, in fact, we're not allowed to by statute. We're not allowed to bargain that. So it's not in our collective bargaining agreements. It's all by statute. Um, and it actually tends to work fairly well. Um, we've had administrators speak to this. Um, and, you know, it does, of course, absolutely require administrators being on top of things. I mean, it's hard, you know. Um, it requires administrators as well, um, you know, evaluating people early and often, you know, um, doing their job, holding folks accountable. I mean, it's, it definitely requires a lot of you know, people rolling up their sleeves and taking it seriously. Um, but it does work well um, here, at least here in, in California. And I should say, because you, know, you hear statistics, um, I think Maybe Aaron mentioned it, but you know about the low numbers, or maybe Steve mentioned this at the beginning. Just talk to the low numbers of teachers who get formally dismissed. Um, at least in California, that obscures though a lot of facts. Um, for us, the way it works is that the vast majority. When I say vast, I'm talking like like 95% or, or more of our of our folks who are subject to formal dismissal proceedings. These are for these three-person you know panels. Um, they settle uh, with a resignation. They don't actually get to a hearing. So you don't those numbers get lost because no one's tracking that, and because they never go to a formal hearing, it doesn't end up being in that final number of eight to eleven. Huge numbers who um, just elect to resign. We have our our leaders and uh, our chapter leaders often um, you know are. They, they help counsel folks, honestly, out of the profession. This is not for you. Um, it's not working out. You know, too bad. Um, that happens all the time. Um, and you know, and our real problem, then, if I, if I may, Rick, if I sorry to take too, take up too much time on the floor here, but but, I, but this segues back to again what I think is actually a bigger problem, at least in California, and I think it's true nationwide. Um, and and which is that we have a huge teacher shortage. Um, and our, you know, we really need to figure out how we're going to recruit, support, and retain the well-trained educators. And I just worry, and I worried about this a few years ago when there was a lot of teacher scapegoating going on, um, that, that our focusing on how to fire ineffective teachers can be a distraction from bigger main challenges we face. At least you know, here in California, 50% of teachers leave within five years. 50% of teachers leave within five years. Um, and then the turnover rates are even higher in the high need schools, so in high poverty schools. Um, so we really need to figure out, it's like if, you know, if you're a general going into battle and you don't have enough soldiers, you can't recruit soldiers, and they leave because they don't like the conditions, and you're going into battle with, 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 with not nearly enough people, and you're, you know, what's going to be your first priority? It's not going to be, oh, wait a minute, how am I going to release the you know, 3% of, of these folks who aren't, who aren't, you know, effective. No, your priority is going to be like, 
I need to get I need to get more people. I need to retain them. I need to make sure they're well trained, right? It's the biggest Linda Darling Hammond who said you can't fight your way out of the problem. You can't fire your way out of the problem. Right. So let, let me uh, uh, pit against each other. Our two Stanford Law School graduates here, uh, Laura uh, and Aaron. Aaron, you talked about uh, teachers union discouraging good interventions like cash, bon- cash bonuses, which presumably might help with the problem of retention or even attracting people to the profession. Laura, what do you think uh, about one is Aaron's characterization that teachers unions do discourage interventions such as cash bonuses? And second, do you think that would be effective in addressing the uh, recruitment problem? So sometimes, sometimes unions do. It's true. I mean, there is, there is a, I referenced the equal pay for equal work um, objective that teachers unions have had and transparency and pay. Um, when you start to build in highly objective factors into compensation packages, and this is true in other industries, by the way, people get frustrated because they don't feel like they're being treated fairly. Um, and when you have objective criteria, training and experience primarily is, is how it works by statute here in California, people at least know what the rules are. People are all treated the same um, for the work. And and, um, and, and it's predictable and the like. Now, there, we have actually had, um, here in California at least, um, we've had chapters who have bargained um, bonuses for going to high-need schools, and that has worked. I mean, there is some willingness to do that. That, that can be done here. Um, and there are other ways to incentivize, you know, getting educators to go to the high-need schools. Um, but, you know, again, there, are, there is a lot of research around that, that how important it is to make those schools good places to work, right? Um, teachers go into teaching because they care about kids, not because they want to make a lot of money. They know they're not going to make a lot of money. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be paying teachers more. We should, um, particularly if we want to really recruit and retain them. Um, but they're not doing it for the money. They're doing it because they care, and you want to uh, support them and make, teach, make those schools good places to work, and they will, with good administrators. That tends to be one of the, when you survey teachers, they'll often say the number one thing is how strong is the principal at the school. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, Aaron, Aaron, uh, you contend that there's a tension between the interests of teachers and the interests of students. Uh, If so, what do you think should be done to to reconcile or or, or resolve or soften uh, soften that tension? Well, I don't know that there's a tension between teachers and students. I think teachers and students are typically aligned, you know, and we'll set aside, I think we've focused enough on the sort of the, the lemon problem, the bad apples problem, you know, that's a small, we can all agree that's a very small percentage of the teacher, and I don't want to lose sight of the fact that there's so many incredible educators who uh, are responsible for so many, one, you know, wonderful things in classrooms around the country. So I don't, I don't think it's the, that teachers and students are in conflict. I do think there are ways that teachers' unions are yeah. in conflict, and we've, we've, talk, we've talked about some of them, but, you know, just to pick up on something that Laura mentioned, which I think is an important point, you know, I agree with Laura absolutely that we need to be focusing on the pipeline to get more uh, great people into the teaching profession to, to support them uh, uh, and, and keep them in so that the, the attrition rate isn't as, as terrible as it is. Um, but I think we have a different a view on how it is that we incentivize or encourage the best and the brightest uh, to stay, to enter and stay in the classroom, right? I, when I was teaching in St. Louis, this is now 12, 13 years ago, uh, my starting salary was $30,000 a year. Um, I would, you know, if I could still be a teacher right now, and, and, and it's been the, it's the most impact I've ever made in, in the world on the, ch- on the children I taught, 
the 80 or 90 children that I taught in, uh, uh, in middle school. Um, it was incredibly rewarding. Um, but, you know, I didn't leave because, uh, you know, I, because you know, my school wasn't a good place to work, and it wasn't a good place to work, to be clear. Uh, that's not why I left. I left because I, I couldn't see a path to sustaining my family, providing for uh, my family. Um, and I think that's, it's fair to say that many, you know, highly educated, well-qualified people uh, who we, you know, love to have in our classroom, the kinds of uh, uh, brilliant minds we want shaping the future of America, um, you know, that's, that's a very hard trade-off to ask them to make. Um, and so you mentioned bonuses, right? This is a place where, you know, I, um, uh, Laura mentioned there's two different kinds of bonuses we can talk about. Bonuses to encourage high-performing teachers to go to low-performing schools, schools serving lots of brown, black and brown kids, uh, uh, poor kids. Um, you know, I, I think there's more alignment on that uh, or less opposition from unions on that. Uh, um, but the, the issue where there's more opposition is uh, uh, how we pay teachers, how we reward the best of our teachers. Because, you know, uh, phrases like equal pay for equal work um, or highly subjective factors, they suggest that, you know, teachers are basically all the same in the classroom. And if you ask any parent who's had children in schools, you know, are all of your child's teachers the same or have some been really great and some been not as good, they would say, no, of course they're not all the same. And, and then if you ask them, well, you know, was what separated the good from the bad, was it training or was it years of experience? or whether they had a master's degree, um, there would be very little, and statistically there's very little correlation between those uh, uh, objective factors, and they are objective, uh, uh, with how much students actually learn, right? How much, you know, if you have a, a poor kid who enters uh, eighth grade, as was often the case with my students, reading at a second or third grade level, right? It's the teacher who's the, by far the dominant factor in whether they leave still reading at a second or third grade level, or if they've made, you know, incredible progress. They get to the fourth, fifth, sixth grade level. And we ought to recognize and reward and pay those teachers like the rock stars they are. If we paid them, you know, the, the bonuses for that outstanding performance, if teacher, those kinds of teachers could make six-figure salaries, uh, uh, then, you know, people like me who are maybe in high school or college right now and want to be educators but just can't see a path um, might uh, uh, be encouraged to enter the profession and stay in the profession if that was a possibility. Can I respond to that, Rick? Please, yeah. yes. His, I mean, um, so so Aaron's, Aaron's claim is that we don't have teacher pay aligned with teacher quality, and that's the problem. Well, I think I think what I'm hearing say is that there should be some merit pay, um, mm -hmm. you know, and and you know, and and you can. That's a policy question. I mean, and I'm not going to say I, you know, I mean, you can make that that argument. Aaron makes it well. Um, I think so. There are downsides uh, to that. You know, again, like it, the statutes here in California um, require uh, pay based on training and experience. It's it's objective. It's clear. It's predictable. You don't in, you don't engender bad feelings uh, among coworkers um, because the reality is we're all human beings and we engage in uh, nepotism and favoritism, we do. And, and, the, and the worry when you have kind of a merit pay system, and particularly if there isn't transparency around it, is that certain people who are, for whatever reason, are in with the administrator will, get paid, will maybe get paid more. Um, we can't necessarily assume that all administrators are going to act completely rationally and fairly in deciding who gets the merit bumps. And I'll say, you know, this again is true in other industries. I mean, even when I was in a associate at a law firm, um, the associates um, preferred that associates get paid uniformly depending on what year they were at in the system rather than baking in subjective factors that can create, you know, that are, could be see, you know, seen as, as, as playing favorites. So there's that. But, but I think even more importantly, though, is, is Aaron's very powerful argument around getting paid whatever $30,000 a year to be a teacher. That's not okay. I mean, teachers have college degrees. They go heavily into debt, increasingly so. 
go these days, right, to get their college degrees. Um, and, you know, that we are not going to recruit, you know, well-educated, well-trained, highly capable, the rock stars like Aaron, if we can't pay them a lot more from the get-go. I don't think it's going to be enough to say, hey, if you, you know, become a teacher, you're going to start out really low at 30K, but if you're really awesome and your principal is really decent and recognizes you're a rock star, you'll eventually make 100K. That's not going to really bring people in. We need to, it's across the board. We need to be paying more across the board if we're really going to attract the kind of numbers and really convince people that um, this is a profession that is valued. I mean, I think the reality that a lot of us don't like to talk about is that, you know, teaching historically was a profession that we allowed, we, releg we let women do that work, and we didn't let women, um, you know, do other kinds of, of, of professional jobs for a long, long time. So we kept the pay down because it was, you know, seen as women's work. And we had struggled a lot to catch up and get out of that. And teachers unions have been trying to um, correct that for a long time, and we're still struggling. Just to follow up on the, on the gender issue, um, I understand that the teaching profession uh, recently has become increasingly feminine. Um, to what extent... Uh, can we incent uh, more men to become teachers? And, and what is driving the increasing feminization in elementary and secondary schools? You got to pay them more. I don't know. If, <laughs> I mean, Aaron could probably speak to this more directly because he actually taught. Aaron, do you want to comment? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm I, I'm aligned. I think Laura and a lot what, what what we agree on is is much much greater than what we disagree on. But but what we're talking about what we agree on is not a, not especially interesting. So let me. Um, so you know, the sort of the theme that I heard from Laura was the problem with merit pay is that it's going to be a nepotistic system where administrators are just paying their best friends more. And if that were what merit pay were, Laura would be right. This would be a horrible way of, of doling out limited uh, resources in our schools based on who the principal who can be, become best friends with the principal. Um, but virtually nobody who's serious about merit pay is proposing that, right? So the best approach uh, uh, that's out there is a, an approach been championed by the Gates Foundation through rigorous study, and it relies on three um, ways of determining what merit is. Like, how do we know a good teacher? When you know, we, do we just trust the principal? And the answer is no. No, actually, that's none of the three measures, right? So one measure, um, it's just partial measure because there are problems with drawing on exclusively. But one measure is how much do students grow. In, in this teacher's classroom? How much do they improve, right? So we're not punishing a teacher for having students who are, enter the grade level already behind in reading or math. That's not the teacher's fault, right? But if the, teacher, if the student grows and proves by more than a grade level uh, in that given year, that teacher has done a remarkable job. Um, so that's one measure, right? But it's not the only one. Test scores aren't the be-all and end-all of what we do in school. So we do other things, right? We, we use neutral observers, not principals, right? Uh, uh, we take videos and we send those videos to neutral observers to score how organized, how uh, engaging the teacher is, right? These are, it's another par partial measure. And then the third measure, which I think is so important, but almost nobody's talking about, is actually student surveys, right? And again, these surveys are not, you know, do you like Mrs. <coughs> Smith or Mr. Tang, right? That we could care less if, if the teachers like, right? But it turns out if you ask really specific questions, uh, they tend to produce results that uh, show which teachers are really good, right? Were you busy the entire time in, in Mr. Tang's class? Did you know what, you, what was expected of you, right? Did you feel challenged, right? Questions that are asking for very specific characteristics that all high-performing teachers tend to generate. And when you use this mixed system, this mixed measure, right, you reduce measurement error 
uh, um, uh, and so, you know, no teacher can be like, oh, I'm actually a really great teacher, even though my students didn't learn anything this year. Um, my, my, te- my students all thought they were bored and lazy, and uh, these neutral observers said I did nothing, and I just sat at my desk. I'm actually a really good teacher, right? Nobody, no teacher could say that when we have this uh, sophisticated system. These are the kinds of measures I'd like to use. Um, uh, and so that, yes, you know, uh, the first-year teacher is always going to enter making less because that's the way the world works, right? Even in the NBA uh, or, or the NFL, rookies get paid less. Uh, uh, based on a rookie salary scale, right? But um, but after you know you've proven your worth, if you're you know you're uh, uh, Patrick Mahomes and you're in your third fourth year and you're the NFL MVP, right? The idea that you should get paid less than your know, 16 year backup because that 16 year backup uh, quarterback has been playing for 16 years and you've only played four years, um, and therefore you just have to wait your time. Um, that's not a way to run uh, a successful profession uh, that, incur- you know, that, that makes the most out of uh, uh, the people who enter it. Uh, uh, we at some point have to incentivize, recognize outstanding teachers, uh, celebrate them, reward them. That creates prestige around the profession. Um, uh, and, and I don't see any way to do that if we're just paying people who are older uh, uh, and who have you know, master's degree in, you know, in whatever uh, field. Well, I can, uh, two quick, this is Laura, two quick responses, if I may, there's a lot I could say, but um, one is, I think, um, the point on your third criterion around, um, you know, student evaluations, um, I, I, I would raise that that would be an incredibly inefficient um, way to determine compensation for teachers. I mean, I, I'd be curious to know if administrators have a different view of this, but the notion that you can efficiently have principals do detailed, um, you know, surveying of students in order to decide how much to pay, you know, teachers, I think that, that would build in a lot of in a lot of inefficiencies and, you know, and, and, and student reporting is, you know, obviously a little fraught. I mean, a lot of my friends who are, you know, in academia say that the, the, the best, um, you know, the, the professors who get the best reviews are the ones who are the easiest graders. Um, so there's that. Um, but, but I would say, again, that I, I, I just, in addition to just the, on the efficiency question, I mean, I see your point, but, but there is research out there that does, does show that, that experience matters in teaching. I mean, a basketball player, as you get older, you're, you're physically not going to be as effective. But that's not true with teaching. <laughs> um, you know, teachers, the research does show that, generally speaking, that their performance improves over time with experience. So, you know, it is rational and efficient to pay, compensate teachers based on their experience. Can I, sorry, Rick, just jump in just for, I'll try to be really quick on that. Um, so, so there, there is definitely evidence, right, that um, in the first three years, maybe even five years, right, uh, uh, I was a terrible teacher in my, and maybe I was a terrible teacher the whole time, but I was a terrible teacher my first year, right? So there, you're absolutely right as you get past that. But between years five and year 30, uh, uh, I'm not aware of evidence, robust evidence indicating there's any correlation between, you know, the 65-year-old teacher who's been doing it for 30 years being better than the, you know, the 40-year-old. Um, and then on the survey front, you know, this is maybe an area where, where there is some tension between the adults and the students, because I think the idea that we don't want to take the time to ask, you know, 13-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, what is going on in their education and, what, you know, whether they feel like they're being challenged or engaged by their teachers, that we don't have the time for that. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's a little bit, that sounds a little bit scary to me, right? I, I, it, there's just so much about the importance of encur- in, in encouraging participation and having students feel uh, as though their voices are heard. And if we don't, if we, so yeah, I'll just, I'll pause there. I'll stop there. 
I just want to uh, maybe our, our last question is about the use of technology. Uh, Paul Peterson mentioned earlier that he wasn't sure that technology is going to radically improve the classroom, but um, clearly uh, things are changing uh, quite dramatically. Um, we might be able, for example, uh, to tape the best lectures and then flip the classroom. Um, my hope is that we can get substantial increases in productivity, and so. Um, maybe we'll be less teacher dependent, teacher quality dependent. Maybe we'll be, um, we can have much larger class sizes. Maybe we can um, get much better results. Um, maybe if I could ask each of you, um, Aaron and Laura, what, how do you think technology will revolutionize the classroom and allow us to get the productivity enhancements we so much desire? Aaron, why don't you start? I don't yeah, sure. I, I don't think it's going to revolutionize the classroom. I think this is sort of the great hope that's, out, that's always out there, that, you know, with just enough uh, you know, enough uh, technology, we can, we can make, you know, render teachers irrelevant and, and we can, you know, show the greatest lectures. There's just an irreplaceable need for an, a kind, caring, engaged, passionate adult in the room, in the lives of these children. Um, so I, I think we would be much, much, much better off, I, which is not to say that technology is irrelevant. Certainly it can help on the margins, but almost all the evidence around, for example, virtual schooling is, is deeply negative. Um, and, and COVID is actually teaching this already ways that, you know, especially um, uh, working class black and brown children and their families struggle. And it's not, by the way, because poor families don't have the time to read with their kids or, or engage them in their school. There's a, a really important study that showed that um, minority parents and poor parents are spending the same amount of time, 13 hours on average as wealthy parents uh, with kids during COVID, like supplementing their schooling. It's just that rich parents can do so much more than that. They can pay for school bubbles, right? They can do all these other things. Uh, technology is not the answer. Uh, uh, teacher quality is the answer. And that's why this has been such an important thing for us to be talking about in this time. This is Laura. I agree. Sorry. This is Laura. I, I, I agree with Aaron on that, and, and especially um, for the, the younger the student, right? You know, I mean, we the younger the student, the more important it is um, to have that in-person interaction and support um, with, with adults in the classroom. Okay, and with that, um, why don't we try to um, end with our moments of comments of optimism. Aaron, uh, what are you optimistic about? Um, not all that much. Um, I guess hearing Steve, hearing Steve talk about this, the success with unions working together with districts, uh, uh, is, is encouraging. Um, you know, if I had to say something, I think we are increasingly moving towards a political moment where we realize how much black and black and brown lives matter and that we realize that, you know, in the criminal justice system, obviously this is a huge, huge problem, but, but it all starts very, very early with educational equity. So I, I suppose I'm hopeful that we'll see, we will see uh, a renewed commitment investment in our, our, our disadvantaged children as, as the, as the biggest need uh, in the next, uh, next four years. But, um, but I'd be lying if I said I was especially hopeful. Okay. And Laura? Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm optimistic that we've seen uh, more folks talking about the, the, the society as a whole and how out-of-school factors um, like poverty, segregation, and the like are impacting, you know, student success. Um, there's, I think, deeper and more, uh, conversations going on around those issues, and that's good in terms of trying to level the playing field, right, um, for for kids. Um, and and I'm also optimistic about the Red for Ed movement. Um, I mean, folks have seen teachers unions across the country, including in, 
in states where they have no collective bargaining power at all, West Virginia and the like, um, organizing with huge community support. I mean, the parental support has been really kind of remarkable um, for the educators from LA to West Virginia and elsewhere. And that um, gives me hope. Um, and um, and I and I think you know we are in a very difficult time right now, obviously, with what's going on with our economy and COVID. Um, but I think that unions are seeing a bit of a resurgence right now, and I'm hoping that there will be renewed interest in investing in schools, investing in communities, and that unions can continue to help, you know, again, regain the middle class that I referred to earlier as being such an important part of the American dream. Great. Rick, do you want to make any com- uh, concluding remarks? Well, I'll just say that these, this is a, a session with two very disparate uh, topics, seemingly. Uh, but I can say without reservation that I have learned something from every speaker on this call. Uh, so thank you all for being such an extraordinary panel. Great. Um, with that, um, that concludes today's call. I just want to plug next week's call. Um, this will focus primarily on police unions. Uh, we will also have a comedian, Matthew Friend, and the former chairman of the Chicago Fed, uh, Michael Moscow. And with that, uh, thank you very much. Thanks to our speakers. Thanks to our listeners, and we'll see you next week. You can disconnect now. Thank you very much for your participation. Bye-bye.